modern applications are distributed systems. These applications require an installation mechanism that can run and update the software across multiple nodes. When a SaaS company starts to work with large enterprise customers, that company needs to figure out a way to deliver their software product to the enterprise. This requires the SaaS company to deploy the product to whatever infrastructure the enterprise is running. Some enterprises use on-prem infrastructure. Other enterprises use AWS. Some use a variety of cloud providers and on-premise servers. A SaaS company with limited resources must be able to have a standard deployment model that satisfies all of these different use cases. Ev Konchavoy is the CEO of Gravitational, a company that builds software for application delivery. Ev's company maintains Gravity, an open-source tool for application imaging and delivery. Ev was also the founder of Mailgun, a popular API for sending email. Mailgun was acquired by Rackspace, and in his time running Mailgun, both in and out of Rackspace, Ev became deeply aware of the problems faced by developers and operators who manage server infrastructure. Ev joins the show to discuss his experience building companies and the state of modern infrastructure. Full disclosure, Ev's company Gravitational is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. This podcast is brought to you by PagerDuty. You've probably heard of PagerDuty. Teams trust PagerDuty to help them deliver high-quality digital experiences to their customers. With PagerDuty, teams spend less time reacting to incidents and more time building software. Over 12,000 businesses rely on PagerDuty to identify issues and opportunities in real time and bring together the right people to fix problems faster and prevent those problems from happening again. PagerDuty helps your company's digital operations run more smoothly. PagerDuty helps you intelligently pinpoint issues like outages, as well as capitalize on opportunities, empowering teams to take the right, real-time action. To see how companies like GE, Vodafone, Box, and American Eagle rely on PagerDuty to continuously improve their digital operations, visit PagerDuty.com. I'm really happy to have PagerDuty as a sponsor. I first heard about them on a podcast probably more than five years ago, and so it's quite satisfying to have them on Software Engineering Daily as a sponsor. I've been hearing about their product for many years, and I hope you check it out at pagerduty.com. Ev Konsevoy, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You were the founder of Mailgun, and I think that's a tool that many, many developers know. What was it like building an API service back in 2010? Before Twilio. Because, Before Twilio. Yeah, Twilio was very important. Before Twilio, if you tried to explain that I have an API that I'm selling, a lot of people would think you're crazy. They will say, no, no, no. First, you have to build a product, and then you have an API. And also, I wasn't the only founder. There were uh, three other people involved. So yeah, that's true. Interesting, if you're asking me how Milgan got started, there's an interesting story about it. It was year 2008, like in the middle of uh, financial collapse. Like the whole world was burning. I mean, the financial part of it anyway. And uh, that's actually when Jeff Bezos, he was in this uh, 
So he'd go to events and he went to startup school at Stanford here in the Bay Area and he was trying to convince people to use AWS. It was a brand new thing. I think S3 was probably launched earlier, but it was around the time when EC2 happened and then Amazon Web Services. He was on stage, like giving his famous presentation on computing as utility in front of very skeptical developers. One of them asked him a question because there was a Q&A section, like how come it's not possible to send or receive an email out of AWS? And it confused Bezos. He was kind of looking around, like there was a VP of engineering maybe like standing behind the behind him. And it's on YouTube now. There's this video. That's the very same second that Milgan was born because I already built, it was kind of side project of mine, like a little thing by using Python at the time that you could programmatically like instantiate email domains and do, you could create inboxes, connect to them using IMAP. It was like a full virtual kind of API driven system. You could build Gmail, like UI on top if you wanted. Yeah, that's how Milgan got started. So got into Y Combinator in uh, 2011 and then sold to Rackspace two years later. The rest is history. What was hard about building an API business in 2010, 2011? You see, if you love something, I don't think it's hard. Like building things is actually incredibly enjoyable, especially if you don't have any customers, you don't have really business. You just like build and, and you play with it and then you feel good. And it was a lot of fun, to be honest. It was also kind of sexy. Infrastructure is always sexy to a certain type of a developer. What sucked was actually getting into production. So a lot of people don't realize that Mailgun and our competitors like SendGrid, these guys were doing really well as well. There is kind of two sides to this business. On one hand, you do have customers. There's like APIs you're providing, I don't know, control panel, billing and whatever. All of that is uh, standard stuff. But then there is this like terrible part. It's all the crime that happens on the internet. Email is extremely dirty business. There is phishing, there are viruses, people use stolen credit cards to open accounts. Then they use those accounts to steal more credit cards. So dealing with bad actors was incredibly stressful. And it's completely invisible. You're actually spending a lot of your engineering time and money on fighting crime. And it's hard because you basically have to build a spam engine that works on outbound email, right? So you're checking email for spam before you send it out because you don't want your customers to be spamming everyone. It's kind of like black art, that technology. And no one even appreciates it because people don't see it. So I would see sometimes someone online said, hey, Mailgun hasn't changed in two years. What have these guys been doing? And I'm like, oh my God, like I saved you from like <laughs> massive spam attacks. That's what I've been doing. But... And meanwhile, the price of email delivery was just like dropping and dropping and dropping because Amazon launched simple email service and there were like lots of copycat competitors. So that was tough, basically dealing with uh, this kind of dark side of email. And also scaling was incredibly challenging too, because uh, email is very heavy in terms of traffic and computation, computational power that you need to have in order to deal with it, comparing to like a typical web app. Mailgun would have like 10x traffic in terms of bandwidth compared to usual web applications. So yeah, we've had to learn how to scale very early. You were not originally an API company, right? Like you didn't think of yourself as a quote API company. We didn't even have the words to describe that back then. You were a mail, like a mail client builder backend system or something like mail infrastructure. So API maybe is not the word how we used to call it. People started asking to give them a REST API to send email. 
And I understand why, if, if for example, using JavaScript, it's, it's very natural to create this like a JSON payload and convert it into email and send it out. But email has its own open standards. There is SMTP for sending, right? And SMTP is actually not that terrible. And then and there's MIME format for messages itself, which if you look at, on how it looks on the wire, or if you read the RFC, it looks incredibly similar to HTTP. They're also like same headers. This MIME format is pretty universal. So you don't need an API to send an email or to receive an email. For receiving, you could use IMAP and POP. So the first version of Mailgun only used open standards. And I'm, I've always been huge believer in open standards in general. So I felt, hey, you probably don't want to have a vendor lock in to your email engine. Just use open standard. Every, every programming language has a library for sending mail. Just use that. But people kept asking for a REST API. So eventually, yeah, we had to add that. And then there was more and more and more. So yeah, it evolved. But originally, it was very simple email system that supported all email protocols, including SMTP for sending, POP3, and uh, IMAP for receiving. When you were acquired by Rackspace and you moved over to their infrastructure, what did you learn about a large-scale migration like that. <laughs> How do you know we had to do large-scale <laughs> migration? Well, I, I, I would assume so. Okay. So interesting. So when Milgan started, we were hosting... I mean, I guess on... you could have technically just said, hey, Rackspace, how do we scale this on Amazon? You have to realize, too, that Am like Amazon back in the day couldn't do email. Remember, that was the question that developer was asking that... Oh, the answer was no? Yeah, because they were blocking all traffic. So Milgan was running on software which at the time was one of the most modern bare metal platforms you could run on. And then the reason we picked SoftLayer is because I looked at all these like awesome startups that were growing, like exploding in popularity. I would just like look up their IPs they were serving their endpoints from. I think Dropbox was one of them. And that's how I saw that, hmm, a lot of really smart people use SoftLayer. So we used SoftLayer for Mailgun and we were, so we picked their Dallas data center for latency reasons. So you get kind of same response time to both coasts. And when Rackspace acquired us, of course, yeah, we had to migrate to Rackspace. And now we're kind of slowly shifting towards like gravitational, my second company, because like I started seeing these pains that we solved now with that massive migration, because Rackspace said, hey, you need to take this whole thing and migrate it from software to Rackspace. And it was painful, even though we were a relatively small company. I also remember around the same time I went to, um, I think it was PyCon, and I met some Instagram people. and. They also were like migrating for them was apparently painful too. I think before Facebook acquisition, they were running somewhere else. So they also were kind of saying that, yeah, like recreating environment from scratch. It was just extremely painful if you want to change providers. Yeah. So migrations is basically, it's, it's, it's something I'm fascinated because in this whole area of DevOps, it's very disappointing for me that we ended up in the state. Because when I was starting, like when I was starting as a developer, it used to be simple. You build your app, you and it would be like an executable, originally for Windows and then for Linux. You would give it to people and they would just run it. There was no need for ops because it was before clouds, before you know desktop software is kind of fun this way. If you do a good job, it will just run everywhere. If yeah, installation wizard. Yeah, it'll have like millions of users if you're doing really well, and uh, there is no need for ops. You just like focus on building features and whatever. But this cloud stuff and the requirement to have like 80% of your team focus on what we call DevOps now, 
which is basically just glorified system administration that's just extremely annoying. And that's really what I saw at Rackspace over and over again. Like we would have these customers that come to us and we would try to sell them, you know, more of a cloud, better cloud, cloud features. And they would say, you know what, we're like sick of infrastructure. Virtual cloud, bare metal doesn't really matter. Infrastructure is not really the biggest pain point. Pain point is just keeping applications alive. That's what they've kind of kept asking for us to figure out how to do, especially if they wanted to have exact same code base, like exact same app running at the same time, like on Rackspace, on, on AWS, or maybe on Azure. That is extremely hard to do because sometimes you would have to have like three different ops teams uh, with knowledge that is specific to each platform you want to run your application on. So that's really kind of what eventually forced us to like this idea, like what if we could figure out, like figure out a way to run cloud apps with the same simplicity, like drag and drop simplicity that desktop applications are running. I think Rackspace was using OpenStack back then, right? Like wasn't that somewhere around the high point of OpenStack? It or was, was OpenStack one of the reasons later? we sold to Rackspace, yeah. Because again, as I said, I started my career when Microsoft was dominating. I didn't want AWS to dominate. And Rackspace had this very compelling message to use open source, which was OpenStack at the time, to basically allow everyone to have their own cloud and their right. own server. So it was... The pitch for OpenStack sounded a lot like the pitch for Kubernetes, right? There are lots of similarities between two projects. And I am of an opinion that Kubernetes actually has potential to completely replace virtualization in general. So unless you need multi-tenant security, which is probably the last... But even then, you could have containers that run in lightweight VMs. So yeah, running Kubernetes on top of your bare metal is probably a, how I would build like a data center from scratch. So yeah, there are plenty of uh, similarities. The two big differences, I think, between Kubernetes and OpenStack are like the, the technology. Kubernetes benefited from being born within a single company. So you could see how things fit together. So it's, it, ha it has much more cohesive design. Whereas OpenStack was a little bit of kind of piece by piece designed by committee because the storage component was built separately from compute. And then there was this network uh, control plane that was designed by someone else. So there was a little bit of that. So, and the second difference is how these two projects govern. I think Kubernetes has a much tighter organization that kind of manages, I'm talking about CNCF and how their kind of Kubernetes management happens, like the project control. Because OpenStack was just, again, suffered from massive fragmentation. There are all these different OpenStack distributions that were hardly compatible. So it was really hard for you to, you know, have like an OpenStack deployment target because different OpenStacks would be different from each other. The Kubernetes governance structure is actually kind of beautiful because when Kubernetes came out, part of what made it so exciting is like, this is the distributed systems equivalent to what Linux was to Windows. Uh, absolutely. And not only that, rather than being maintained by, you know, a, a group of scattered individuals like Linux was, which worked out like quite well, but I think, you know, it, there's, you know, that could have been kind of a once in a lifetime thing. But Kubernetes is backed by Google, which to some people is like kind of scary. And, you know, now it's kind of centralized. It's like centralized corporate style Linux, but it's more like centralized corporate style Linux plus the decentralization factor to it's it's very interesting to watch it's like you know it's a war of the powers right and but in a very in a way that's so good for developers very much so i am not super 
knowledgeable about kind of inner workings on Kubernetes governance, for example. But like looking mostly from the outside, I think any project, just like with software engineers, uh, engineering in general, can always benefit from you know like like one central source of like ideas. Like you have to have like a vision. And there needs to be a person or maybe a small team that basically maintain that vision and evolve right. this vision. That's basically what Torvalds is doing for Linux. And then once you have this vision part laid out, then you can allow individual contributors to compete for best possible implementation of parts, of pieces of that vision. And that's the thing with Kubernetes. I think it has extremely clean and obvious vision, like where it's going. And then, yeah, and then you have all this competition for like individual features, like this special interest groups, like the best implementation will eventually win. So Kubernetes now has this evolving standards for how do you define an application? Because kind of funny thing about Kubernetes, like originally it came out, there was no way to describe an application. It was a cluster and then a bunch of low level components. And then Helm came around and all these other things. So yeah, as long as it's compatible with just overall vision for the project, then I think eventually like best implementations win. And OpenStack, they, they kind of didn't have that. There was just a lot of um, kind of randomness going on. Mm-hmm. Like the fact, for example, that Kubernetes has this kind of compliance test that you could, you know, right. to become a, a certified Kubernetes distribution, yeah. you have to you, you have to make sure like all your APIs are, are working properly. So uh, that's just, again, manifestation of that they do have a clear idea where the project is going. Do you think the service mesh stuff was kind of a the Istio launching with like a lot of hype and the developer community kind of striking back against that? Do you think that was at all a, a referendum on the the governance structure? I really can't say. You see, all these open source communities sometimes they just they get angry. There's just like drama and interesting <laughs> yes. dynamic going on. So. Uh, which benefits me as yeah, a media I, company. I, I don't have a, <laughs> That's why uh, I ask about it. Yeah, exactly. So it's also kind of interesting, like what's happening inside the cluster is maybe less interesting for me, like against this kind of broader vision of what Kubernetes is. You compared it to Linux a little bit earlier, and I love this comparison because like back in the day, we would look at a server and it's a thing in itself. It's really your universe. You would deploy your software into a server. The first job I had for an internet company, like our production environment was just one really expensive Dell's machine. And there was a second one that was like backup. But the idea was we were like, we just copy your files into your server, that's your deployment. It was like an RSS search engine. But these days, software is so big and it's uh, it has so many dependencies and microservices and needs so much data, like it doesn't fit into your server. It's a, a stupid idea. So you need actually a cluster of machines. So now this cluster is basically a new computer. That's really what you're deploying into. So the old computer was just an individual machine, and now it's basically a data center. And if you have new definition of a computer, you need new type of an operating system. And that's what Kubernetes is. It's an operating system for a data center. So we basically went from mainframes to a bunch of small boxes, and then we're going back to like mainframe era. Because if you zoom out, that's what data center is. It's just a, you could think about it of one giant mainframe that needs an operating system. Do we have a clear picture of how we should be doing these deployments? So, for example, I think about if I'm deploying Kafka, do I deploy that Kafka to the same Kubernetes cluster that I've got some random like microservice API running on, or do I spin up an entirely new Kubernetes cluster devoted only to Kafka? I would say the answer to this question depends when you're asking this question. I think to do it properly compare in 
like being compatible with Kubernetes vision, it needs to be deployed into the same cluster. Because again, if it's an operating system, an operating system should be capable to run all of your applications just absolutely fine. So you might have, I don't know, like a Postgres database on the machine and a chat app running together and it should be totally fine. So why wouldn't that apply to, to, to an environment? However, like when things are just born and they develop over time, Kubernetes originally lacked a lot of capabilities and features to make it possible. Again, just Linux back in the day, like like the kernel wasn't, there was like very limited support for threads, for example. And then it evolved. And now Linux is the most capable multi-processing operating system that we have, I think. Similarly with Kubernetes, just as it's evolving, it's gaining more and more capabilities to run mixed workloads, because that's really what you're pointing at. And same thing on application side, with Kafka was built, like Kubernetes wasn't around. So if someone is creating like brand new Kafka or something to replace Kafka, well, now you understand that it probably should be deployed into Kubernetes. Maybe you should be building it in a different way. But because everything is changing and we're talking about this, like we're in the middle of this transition, then it's just, I guess it probably depends on the use case. If you're comfortable running Kafka on the same Kubernetes cluster and it doesn't affect performance of other things, you're sure, go and do it. I don't have a strong opinion. I think it's always... Depends, that's always the answer that you probably want to hear. As a programmer, you think in objects. With MongoDB, so does your database. MongoDB is the most popular document-based database built for modern application developers and the cloud era. Millions of developers use MongoDB to power the world's most innovative products and services, from cryptocurrency to online gaming, IoT, and more. Try MongoDB today with Atlas, the global cloud database service that runs on AWS, Azure, and Google Cloud. Configure, deploy, and connect to your database in just a few minutes. Check it out at mongodb.com atlas. That's mongodb.com slash atlas. Thank you to MongoDB for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Your experience at Rackspace, the disappointment in how ops turned into such a large part of what developers are doing, how did that shape what you're working on right now? Well, first of all, it had nothing to do with Rackspace. We all have DevOps teams. It's just general state of cloud computing, if you will. So you have 20% of your engineering team, again, working on the application. And then you have the rest of your team basically keeping that application alive, which feels kind of like a waste of time and effort. Like, why couldn't we... Like, the model, the operational model of cloud software I would like basically ends on, on GitHub or GitLab. I want to push my code into into my Git repository and just go home, just go sleep. I want the robot to build my software, run all my tests, and then create a deployable artifact and push the deploy. It's like stick that artifact into, into a data center somewhere and it will just run. Like I wouldn't want to use monitoring, alerting. I wouldn't want to be scaling anything. I just want this all happen automatically for me. And the Kubernetes is a step forward towards that future. Because if you think about like, what is like your ops team is doing, they constantly compensating for the fact that this the, the infrastructure, your cloud computer is just really dumb. It just cannot really do some things automatically. And I remember like back at Mailgun, we would always struggle to predict 
what percentage of our compute needs to be allocated to API servers versus background machines. It would be hard to figure out like what kind of capacity we need to run MongoDB reliably. So you only figure out these things as you go. It's like, oh, my latency is increasing, or I'm getting like connections dropped. We should get more hardware like for this particular piece of the application. So you're basically doing manual scheduling, and that is theoretically what Kubernetes solves for you. So if you have your app and your app has like a certain performance envelope and then it starts running and it starts increasing and the envelope keeps being stretched because you get more traffic, well, Kubernetes should just allocate resources appropriately, right? If something is failing, it will like restart it for you. That's, that's the whole idea. So that is why it's such a critical first step towards this future in which we shouldn't be doing DevOps. So I'm kind of waiting for that to happen. And that's why we started Gravitational too, is because a lot of people, they see Kubernetes as a, it's like one or two things. So some believe that Kubernetes increases developer productivity. I would say it's debatable. Yeah. Because my productivity is insanely awesome if I stick my code to GitHub and I go home. I don't even need to know that Kubernetes is there. That's really how developers, I think, should be thinking about their own productivity. But the second uh, component is actually uh, legit, is that if you look at your AWS uh, spending, Kubernetes can shrink that dramatically because it can automatically uh, manage hardware utilization for you. In other words, using Kubernetes in a good way, you could basically just dial in. Like I want my infrastructure to be always busy, always utilized, like, I don't know, like 60%, 80% and Kubernetes will keep it so, so you can cancel the rest of the instances that you're not using, which automatically means that you should stop worrying about what type of instances to use. Just get the fastest, the most like awesomeness servers you could get and let Kubernetes slice and dice that compute into partitions that are best suited to your application. Stop tinkering around trying to like figure out which instance type to use, just use the most capable hardware. That is, like a, I think, a much more interesting way to look at Kubernetes value. But then there is another, like a third reason to use Kubernetes, and that's what my new company is about, Gravitational. If you make your application just run on Kubernetes and ignore the underlying cloud, so then you have a, a potential to make your application run on any cloud you want, as long as there is Kubernetes there. The problem, though, is what people are doing today with these Kubernetes clusters, and they turn them into these special snowflakes. So you could have one Kubernetes cluster that's configured to do authentication one way, another Kubernetes cluster is doing something differently. So we're kind of going back into this, let's do like DevOps by hand. And there are all these providers and Kubernetes distros that would sell you a, you know, like a control plane where you can tweak all these different parameters. What we thought would be sexy, what if you could have a tool, like this magical tool, that you can point at your Kubernetes cluster and it will just snapshot it and save it into a file and you will call it cluster image. You know how we used to have VM images? So this, you could capture state of a server and then we had like container images so you could capture state of a Linux process or a microservice, if you will. So continuing that very same idea, what if we could capture state of a cluster? And then you could use that image to have exact replica running somewhere else. So that's really what our project is doing that we're working on. It's called Gravity and it's open source. And like you have to start somewhere. Right now it's only supporting vanilla upstream Kubernetes, but the the idea here, if you could package your application this way. So we're going back to this original vision, like I'm a developer, I push my code into GitHub or GitLab. I like GitLab better actually lately. 
Really? Yeah, because it's open source, because it also allows you to run anywhere you want. It's just Let's a very conversation uh, yeah. for a little bit. Like, I want to hear more <laughs> about that. I just really also like how the company runs. Anyway, switching back to our original. So yeah, imagine you stick your code into- Well, let me ask you a question. So like I've gone to like four or five KubeCons, maybe six. Definitely going to San Diego. Are you going there? Yes. Okay, cool. I love walking around the expo hall. It's such a window into the opportunities that people are seeing in this space, and which is a wide open market, you know, with lots of differing opinions, which is really interesting. You walk around, you see all these different providers, like you said, they're selling you different flavors of Kubernetes, different management planes, different ways to install Kafka and install this and install that, run whatever. And you take a step back and you think, is it possible this might be all madness? Is it possible <laughs> that we are in a spe- certain specific time when it looks appetizing to do all this crazy work, to do our year-long Kubernetes migration? Is it possible that that is all madness? And we're going to look back in a year and say, well, I wish we would have just waited a little bit longer and waited for a better way to deploy our applications. Well, I think this is how our industry works. You might be disappointed or you might embrace it, but usually when something new comes out, there's this explosion of randomness and, and craziness. But then eventually this technology becomes boring and the hype moves on and there's this kind of residual that's left behind. So that's innovation. That's really what... Uh, so the best ideas that come out of this kind of explosion of new things, those that survive and uh, stick around, those are useful bits that we will take with us and that's how i think the progress is just moving forward it's it's kind of fascinating to watch that in the end we will be in a in a better place so yeah there will be less need for ops i have no doubt in my mind but yes we have to endure this uh, noise and you have to understand too why this is happening like imagine you have a company that does i don't know something like scanning for vulnerabilities like you just look at someone's code and you find if there were like any well-known vulnerabilities or someone is importing a library that's been hacked or something so then kubernetes comes out now you need to rebrand everything you're doing with kubernetes in it why because then you could be at kubecon you'll have something relevant even though you, the core value you're delivering has nothing to do with Kubernetes and it's perfectly applicable to Kubernetes workloads anyway, but you have to rebrand it as Kubernetes because then it's new and sexy, which means that if a company has a, like a budget to migrate to Kubernetes, they will start looking for everything for Kubernetes. They would just like type in in the browser, like I want, I don't know, like automatic like code scans for vulnerabilities. And they will always add for Kubernetes because that's the kind of budget they have. That's really how this industry works. And it's, yeah, so it's unfortunate, but I'm kind of used to it by now. It's, it's almost fun. So you could clearly see that, like a lot of these things, they're clearly useful. But interestingly, they're clearly useful outside of Kubernetes too. So putting yourself in the shoes of a bank, what would your Kubernetes strategy, your quote unquote Kubernetes strategy be today? So, well, first of all, congratulations. You just uh, promoted me to like a really crappy like, <laughs> bank CTO. Because first of all, I have no idea about how banks are running their compute. What if, what if they're using mainframes? Some actually of them do. Like someone buys mainframes. Those are probably banks. But I would, like being in charge of technology in general, I'm not, I'm not really sure where this bank thing is coming from. Like banks are like no different from others. Like they probably need to be like, Everyone needs to be as secure the re- as the a bank. The reason I like the bank example is because banks have the entire archaeological dig of past 
technologies somewhere in their stack. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. And it's like whenever so whenever a new technology comes out, they're always thinking about how to leverage. I mean, because they have the money to leverage it, but they have all the past things and it's like i don't know i don't know how to answer the question either but i suspect that most organizations like this they probably have like <laughs> i like your analogy so they have every archaeological layer of technology preserved in an organization forever i was talking to like a actually i do know someone who works the bank and he told me that like some of their like older systems he said like we lost the ability to reboot machines and like <laughs> what do you mean? Okay. Like, if you press the button, it will reboot. It's a hardware button. And, and he laughed and he said, no, like, what I mean by that is, like, we're not sure if we, like, reboot it, if it's going to come back. Because, <laughs> like, the, the will software survive reboot? I'm not sure if he was, like, completely serious, but he wasn't smiling. But then there's kind of next step from there. It's like, we lost the ability to upgrade Linux kernels. So we have some software that just has dependencies on, like, kernel, like, 2.x series. And they can, we can't patch vulnerabilities anymore so that's the kind of stuff that banks have for, have to deal with and no kubernetes is not going to help them with that <laughs> but if you're just a, i don't know, like running engineering or software development for any sizable organization i think it is wise to generally have a strategy to being able to run your applications on like any cloud provider anywhere so any form of computer can get your hands on. We should be able to just do it without incurring massive operational overhead. But you mean like if you're... Just application portability. Just, yeah, we have this app. We can run it everywhere. Kind of like GitLab. You can run GitLab on Amazon. You can put it on Raspberry Pi probably. There is something about it, just being able to, to do these things. And that's something Kubernetes, I think, can definitely help. So if you make a Kubernetes application, yeah, it will run on Kubernetes cluster. So GitLab is kind of interesting to the same extent that Kafka is interesting, because you have all these different things to deploy. You need memory, you need disk, and it you need it to scale. Uh, GitLab is kind of like, it's it's the perfect example of a very hard-to-run application that has all the different components that you... it would. It's kind of the, the perfect stress test for an application delivery mechanism. So, like, you know, there are people who are working on various kinds of ways to deploy complex applications on top of Kubernetes. And GitLab is, is like, it tends to be the example that they use. So, if, if I want to just deploy GitLab on raw Kubernetes, I mean, does the operator pattern do it for me? Does a Helm chart do it for me? In terms of the open source deployment mechanisms, what's the best model organism for how to deploy GitLab? Actually, for GitLab specifically, maybe I'm wrong, but I think I saw that it comes with a Helm chart. So they kind of pick the answer for you. Hmm. Well, I might be wrong, but I just, for whatever reason, clearly remember that it's possible. And look, I actually never really, I guess I understand the value of things like Helm, but just like basic Kubernetes objects, just some kind of low-level deployments, like things like you know pods and individual containers. It never felt to me like particularly hard problem. Like, yeah, the... These are not hard tools to use, but I guess people just need higher level abstractions. So yeah, yeah, we support them at Gravitational as well. So if you have a Helm chart, we can make an image of your Kubernetes cluster with uh, everything that your Helm chart contains that will go into that image. So you could deploy it somewhere else. And so if I wanted to deploy GitLab using your delivery mechanism, why would that be more useful than using Helm? Oh, because it's a completely different operational model. So the, 
If you're using Helm, you have to have a cluster set up and configured so it runs, and then you can stick your application into it. And your application might be too big for this cluster. Like, for example, imagine you have some code that requires, I don't know, GPUs to be present or something. Or you have, like, a certain requirements for, I don't know, disk latency or something. And then your deployment will fail. Like, sure, you'll stick the code and it will just, it will not run. The way Gravity works is that you feed it the Helm chart. It will go fetch all of containers and it will look into each container's image and it will break it into layers. It will deduplicate layers and it will start packing all these layers into this image. And it won't stop there. Then it will start packing Kubernetes itself into that image. So the image will become like a fully independent. It's a, I like calling it like deployable artifact. It's, it's the thing that doesn't have any dependencies. You could put it onto a USB stick, walk into a data center full of raw servers, stick it into like a closest like Dell machine, and the full cluster will be recreated, including Kubernetes. And it will run in this kind of read-only mode as an appliance, so it doesn't need management. That's really the idea behind Gravity, is that you package Kubernetes along with application and everything it needs into this just one file. So you don't have to worry about container registries. You don't have to worry about setting up Kubernetes. You don't have to worry about setting up Kubernetes security and compliance. You don't have to worry about synchronizing SSH access and Kubernetes access. So this image contains everything. That's really the simplicity. Because again, we just fundamentally don't like the idea that software needs to be managed. So Gravity allows you to have these Kubernetes appliances that are self-running. So now we're one step closer to this vision where development's job ends with git push. Everything else is just irrelevant. You just get this image at the end of your CI-CD pipeline. So the robot effectively will produce the image and you could stick it into Amazon and it will run there. You don't need to have a pre-existing Kubernetes cluster and you don't need to manage this cluster. Obviously this model doesn't really work for 100% use cases. The most popular use case today, that's really how we make most of our money is that companies would use this tool to create these images that, that contain their SaaS offering. And then other companies will just download these images and have full replicas running inside of their own data centers or inside of their own cloud accounts. That's what you can, like an example of something you could do only with Gravity today. Like one of our customers that get this request from their customers, like, hey, we want your giant SaaS thing deployed into our AWS account but we're not gonna give you access to it. So how do you do that? That is really how you do it. You basically just uh, make this image, give this image to your customer, and they'll just run it and it will get up and running. And they will not even realize that Kubernetes is involved. That's really the magic. Just like your desktop software, you might not know what kind of like you know, C++ library your desktop software is using. It's irrelevant. So that's really kind of what we do with Kubernetes. We package it into this image and make it completely invisible to the cluster user. So if I'm using a compression format, the computer on which I am uncompressing it needs to know how to uncompress that file format. Mm -hmm. And similarly, with your application delivery system, the whatever computer, whatever Amazon cluster you're deploying it to, that cluster needs to know how to unpackage this thing. Oh, it's a tar file. So we don't really have any proprietary data formats or APIs. So it's a simple tar file. If you unpack it, inside you will find a directory, for example, with like all the binaries. The Kubernetes itself will be packed there. 
then you will find all of Docker images. And they're already compressed, by the way. So we don't really need to compress and decompress anything. Oh, I was just drawing an analogy. I didn't mean. No, it's a good analogy. Like, I understand, like, really what you're asking. So because it's a tar file, so you move it to this machine, then you unpack it, and then and you see, like, install uh, command. You execute the install command, and it will give you an instruction. It will say, hey, here's a command. Go copy-paste this command on other machines. And as you do, these machines will form a cluster. So it will just automatically create Kubernetes for you. It will put the application inside and it will do like a bunch of other things. So we'll do things like hardware validation to make sure that the hardware you're using or the cloud instances you're using, whatever, that they actually have the capacity to run this application. Again, we like this analogy to desktop software. If you ever bought, I know, like a game, like back in the day, like a software in the box and you look on the side, there would be like system requirements and it would say like, oh, like this app requires like eight gigs of RAM and the, and the CD-ROM or whatever. So Gravity allows you to define similar requirements for your cluster. So it will say that it needs to have like XFS file system and the Linux kernel not older than 4.2 or whatever. And the disk throughput needs to be no less than this and network latency needs to be that. So you could actually set all these parameters and before getting up your application up and running, Gravity will check if your environment is compatible. But once it's running, it will run, hopefully forever. So our operational model, it's like the extreme use case, is that you could take this cluster image and kind of stick it into satellite, shoot it into space, and it will just run there with any, without any supervision. So that's the level of simplicity that we are aiming with this project. Again, we're not there yet, and yes, you do need to do a little bit of ops, but it's nothing compared to what it would take to just manually run several Kubernetes clusters using some kind of control plane or something. So if I'm a SaaS company, like a Kafka provider or log management provider, and I want to make my SaaS offering portable, you have an open source project. The gravity is open source. Yeah, open source, so 100%. I can just take your open source project and use that to package my software and give that to the target customer. Correct. Where's the business model for you in that? There are certain enterprise capabilities that our customers require. So obviously they want vendor support. That's obviously like number one thing. But in, in terms of product features and capabilities, if you try to sell a software like this to like any serious organization, like they will have some requirements for you. Like they would say, like we want like FedRAMP compliance, or we want like detailed audit logs, or we want your application to integrate into our corporate SSO. So these are the kind of things that we uh, charge money for. So if you want this cluster replicas to just seamlessly integrate with other things that exist on um, uh, like on a target cloud where you're deploying. So those are some of the enterprise features and capabilities that we offer. Log DNA allows you to collect logs from your entire Kubernetes cluster in a minute with two kubectl commands. Whether you're running 100 or 100,000 containers, you can effortlessly aggregate and parse and search and monitor your logs across all nodes and pods in a centralized log management tool. Each log is tagged with a pod name and a container name and a container ID and a namespace and a node. LogDNA is logging that helps with your Kubernetes clusters. 
There are dozens of other integrations with major language libraries and AWS and Heroku and FluentD and more. Logging on Kubernetes can be difficult, but LogDNA simplifies the logging process of Kubernetes clusters. Give it a try today with a 14-day trial. There's no commitment. There's no credit card required. You can go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash logdna to give it a shot and get a free t-shirt. That's softwareengineeringdaily.com slash logdna. Thank you to LogDNA for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. As a business, I mean, you have to offer whatever those features are, compliance features, to the SaaS company that purchases it from you. Like if I'm a log management company, you know, you got to charge them a high price. And there's only so many SaaS companies. And it seems like a tough business to be in because there's only so many SaaS companies and, you know, you're going to have to get all of them to pay a high price, and they might have the engineering savvy to build compliance mechanisms themselves. Forget about business for a second. I think the most important thing is, like, you want to build something useful that kind of changes the landscape of the industry. And that's really, like, the sexy part of what we're doing. I just recently completed reading this book called Innovators by, I forgot his last name. Isaac. Guy. Yes, Correct. And it was interesting to kind of follow like how our industry was changing. And it's just always like some fascinating individuals with crazy ideas and some companies. And like to me, look, not all of them were commercially successful. There are so many failures, like Lisp machines and almost anything Lisp. Like there was like no big money ever. So building something that like changes, like makes a lasting change. That to me is the most important thing. And what I want for gravity to accomplish, and by the way, it's not just gravity. There, you can get into a, a much better place, into this like amazing future by using solutions that are kind of agreeing with our vision for the future, which is you developing your application using open source components and using open standards. You not relying on any kind of proprietary APIs. You try not to use many of these kind of cloud provider specific APIs. And if you're capable of doing that, then you have this ultimate freedom to run your application anywhere, especially if it doesn't require administration. I think most developers would agree with me that it's a fantastic world to live in. It's going to take us a while to get there. Many years, many startups will have to help HashiCorp basically on the same mission. They have this multi-cloud message, like what is Terraform? It's a way for you to have exact same code base that gets your infrastructure identical everywhere. What is Vault? It's an open source version to proprietary secret management platforms that all these clouds are adding. So no, don't use proprietary stuff. Use open source stuff from companies like HashiCorp or from us. So that to me, what's important about Gravity. But if we succeed, that is going to be enormous market opportunity too. Because we have to make sure that cloud providers, AWS, Azure, GCP, like all of these guys, they need to be just dumb providers of commodity compute. They are absolutely uncomfortable with this message and they will always fight us. But that is what we developers want. And if you've been following this industry for a while, and I'm sure you have, you see that developers are getting more and more power in decision-making within organizations. So that is really what we're betting on. So counting SaaS companies may be like a little bit counterintuitive, but just counting people who code 
but just counting like lines of code written every day. Mm. That is just enormous, enormous part of the world's economy now. And enabling this like multi-cloud future where cloud providers are irrelevant, that to me, that is a good reason to end up in I know, innovators book written 50 years from now. Huh. So that's really where gravity is going, just to make sure that the future is going to look like this, like I just described, and not as like the 90s when Microsoft was dominating, like never again. I had some of my friends who stopped programming and, I know, went and got an uh, MBA degree or something. So Seriously? we don't want that to happen again. Yeah. Because they were so disgusted by the ecosystem? Because it was extremely grim to be a developer in like late 90s. Because you knew if, if you build something out of value, then Microsoft will just make it built. They, they will just build it into Windows like they did with Netscape Navigator. And then you were also at the mercy of Microsoft APIs. They would just announce like this way of building apps is obsolete. Like everyone is migrating to this. Like you would basically have to go and redo your application. Well, the funny would... thing about that is like whether or not there would have been regulation I think Microsoft would have lost its position of like inevitably. I think like between Linux and just it's actually exactly what happened. Regulations didn't right, do regulation. a thing. Well, it I mean they just... got they got the CEO to basically resign. I mean because he was so exhausted, right? And then look at their market cap. What happened after CEO resigned? They like quadrupled in size or something. They continued to do really well without Gates. What happened to Microsoft was internet was Linux. So Windows just became irrelevant. So I would argue that the regulations didn't really harm Microsoft that badly. And that the only reason Apple is getting away with basically doing the exact same thing on the iPhone platform is because Android is around. So no one can claim that Apple is a monopoly because what's the global, what's the market percentage they have? It's probably like single digit or something. Yeah, something small. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, they all want to do the exact same thing. Just lock you in and charge you a fee on, on everything. So what do you think happens like if AWS becomes like the only cloud you can run on? I guarantee you that pricing for everything on AWS will start increasing. Like simple email service will be like five times the price. I don't know, man. Like what's interesting is how how Bezos has used the AWS cash flows to subsidize the marketplace. Somebody told me that the market not That's a good point. Not an yeah. Amazon Insider, but like things are still cheap on Amazon. Like literally every article of clothing I'm wearing is from Amazon. Like, I made sure, I interviewed the guy who runs Confluent, the Kafka company, Mm -hmm. and I made sure to wear only Amazon Essentials clothing (laughs) while talking to him, you know, because they're having this kind of issue with the Kafka licensing stuff. But anyway, that was a, I didn't even tell that to him. That was just a personal, personal irony. But, you know, I, I actually like the positioning that, like, where you're starting is with a thesis about the way that the future is going and you have a very specific i know you said you know getting away from the business but like you have a very specific value add that you're trying to do with what gravity and and teleport are doing right now you have a very specific market with that core competency there are a lot of adjacencies that you can expand into and one of the reasons why i think it's great to position yourself that way and i think this kind of strategy in business is underrated the idea of of going into adjacencies as they opportunistically emerge 
I mean, one of the reasons it, it is underrated is because it gives you optionality. Exactly. The yeah. Kubernetes market, we have no idea what's going to happen. Like, that's just the reality. We have no idea where this thing is going. It's going up and to the right, but we don't really know the other, like, axes on which yeah, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it is going up or sideways or down or whatever, right? Like, so you, like, pick something. Just something, and then have a vision for what the future is, and expand into adjacencies as they present themselves. So, what would those adjacencies be? For gravity, or for your business, gravitational. Where do you want to take it? Like, what do you want to do? Well, there's going to be a, a lot of. So, right now, I think gravity is just like the only open source and somewhat open standard way to do like downloadable SaaS. But you can look into like the tenant management, for example. If you're running SaaS business, like not any type of SaaS, but like there are plenty of situations where you will have customers who would come in and say, we don't want to share the underlying hardware with other customers. Like we like your SaaS, we want to hit like sign up button, but can you make sure that my account is isolated from other tenants? Put me on a separate like hardware. Sometimes people would say, put me on a separate VPC. We don't want to share the network with other tenants on your platform. So. These are the things you could try to do inside of a Kubernetes cluster, and it gets complex pretty quickly. Or like if you're using an like, imaging tool like this, someone clicks sign up button, you instantly deploy a brand new instance of the app from that image, it takes like a few seconds. And now you have, like, you have completely isolated cluster that runs again as an appliance. You don't need to monitor it, but just, just for that tenant. That's a pretty magical capability. And then obviously you could, if they ask you like, hey, can you, have many points of presence for us. And it's just for us, like for like different regions, you could expand geographically and you could just do it with ease without having to think which cloud is available over there. Oh, I have an AWS region, fine. Or there's like an Equinix Colo facility. Sure, we'll stick it in there. It's just absolutely don't care what kind of compute you have. It's a huge use case. We actually at Mailgun, we had this demand from our customers to have a European pop forever. And look, we had a pretty competent engineering team and it, we've kept telling ourselves, just going to take us a long time to ever consider having two regions instead of one. It's just, it's a, it's a serious undertaking. It's true even today for most SaaS companies to expand from one region to two, let alone like 20. And with that, uh, with a solution like gravity, yeah, you could do it as long as you adopt this kind of image-based deployment model, because once you have you know, 20, 30, or 200 instances of your cluster running somewhere, you want them to be absolutely identical, which means that no, like configuration tweaks on a per cluster level, they should not be allowed. So that is something that Gravity does as well. So that each cluster is basically read-only. It can only accept like code updates. And so that allows you to kind of run many, 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 many clusters with extremely low operational overhead. I think it's incredibly valuable even today. Yeah, Gravity is doing well. We just open sourced it, I think less than a year ago, just a few months ago. And there is already a significant interest in the industry and from investors as well. So yeah, it's a project that clearly has legs. I'm really proud of it. What's been the toughest engineering problem that you've solved in building the open source project? I guarantee you that the toughest engineering problems were solved by toughest engineers we have, and it's not me. But I've been always fascinated by, so we have some engineers who not just experts at being like awesome coders, but they also like domain experts. So we have 
this one guy who's like absolutely amazing with security and compliance. So he would be, so he'd be looking at like, you know, like FedRAM spec, like on one side. And on the other hand, we're like figuring out how to like make all of these things true with like zero configuration for the, for the end user. That's really like the true value creation. When you're converting a government regulation into a robot that enforces all these rules for you. That to me is pretty tough. So when on the one hand you're dealing with something boring, with your left hand you're dealing with something boring, and with the right hand you're creating something beautiful, which is the product that's on the other hand. Maybe it's not the toughest thing, but it's definitely fascinating to me. That would be pretty tough for me. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to concentrate long enough to complete that task. Yeah, yeah. So if you yeah, if you enjoy reading RFCs, if you enjoy understanding all these different standards and yeah, then gravitational is a fun place to work for sure. So we're definitely not one of those kind of move fast and break things companies, simply because none of our customers are like that. What are the other problems in infrastructure management that when you talk to customers or you just talk to people in the space who maybe they're not your customers, but they are shopping around for this kind of software? There's a lot of people listening to this podcast that are looking for ideas in this space to start companies within. What are the other problems that you see, just predominant problems? You would probably agree with me if I said that most companies want to implement basic rules, like the way you run your SaaS. For like most obvious things, like developers must never touch production data. You don't want random Googler reading your Gmail, right? So like when you approach a startup here in San Francisco and you ask them, if their developers can actually touch production data, you will be surprised how many companies, how big they can actually get before they start fixing it. Like the fact that random developers at so many companies can see production data and touch it is, is pretty crazy. And how they do it, like, yeah, they, if they have an SSH key to get into a machine that production is running, they can totally do that. So that's, like, it's, it's not a very sexy area for some people because if you try to solve this problem, you're running into this risk of pissing developers off because developers don't like getting you know, access denied or getting some authorization. Or I know some organizations, they have like interesting rules with really funny names like 4i rule. Like in order for you to get an interactive session into a remote server using SSH or kubectl exec, like any of these commands, someone else needs to be watching you. Like it's sort of like 4i policy. It's almost like extreme programming, if you remember what that was. So yeah, implementing these things is, it's absolutely critical for companies as they scale to clean this up because you could probably be liable if you don't do it over time. And it's just complete madness what's happening out there right now. So we do uh, solve like part of this problem. So we have a lightweight product that we, it's another open source project it's called Gravitational Teleport. It's basically a really, really lightweight easy to understand replacement for open SSH. So you just put it on your machines instead of SSHD, and you could do some of these things. But there's like a long list of things companies want to do. You probably want to, you know, like get an alert when like there is an SSH event. It could be a login or like a code execution, remote code execution or deployment from an engineer who's on vacation, right? Like why would someone who's physically like in Hawaii and no, they're not working from there. It's just like on a real vacation. Why is that person like running a deployment? So ask how many companies have something like this in place that solves it elegantly. And it's not really, no, you will see that it's not that common. 
people kind of keep kicking that can down the road until they get hacked and end up on the front page of Hacker News or yeah, until they like hire expensive security people who come in and fix it. So just the fact that we're relying on OpenSSH in its simplest form for critical parts of our infrastructure, it's kind of laughable. How's the experience building gravitational compared to building Mailgun? Okay, so the positive thing about Mailgun is it's almost impossible for me to go into a party like wearing Mailgun shirt. So many people will be like shaking my hand and saying, hey, we use Mailgun, it's an amazing <laughs> product. Like, you feel like you know, Paris Hilton at a party. It's like, it's, it's really fun. Gravitational is like obviously a little bit younger, although we are now getting more and more kind of brand recognition. So that's on the kind of positive side, like towards Mailgun. But the positive side towards gravitational is we're not a SaaS company, so we actually don't have any ops. There was a weekend not a while ago when Google Cloud was down, and I had a breakfast schedule with a friend of mine, and I just ended up eating it alone because his entire team couldn't figure out how come their application was down. Like It's like it happens every once in a while. I didn't care because we don't have any servers. Like We make open source software. It sits on GitHub. People come in, download, and... It's incredibly liberating. Our website is a statically generated thing. It sits in S3 bucket. Like I can physically shut down every single instance we have in the cloud and business will continue to work fine. Mm. That is unbelievable relief compared to my mailgun experience. I'll tell you a story real quick. It was like Saturday and I was walking my dog. It was like year 2012. And someone texts me, hey dude, mailgun is on front page on Reddit. And I'm like, what? Pull my phone out, www.reddit.com, yep. And the, the title says, if you get like an email from this terrible company, Mailgun, like make sure not to open it or something. And I'm like, what is uh. going on? So we started looking it, into it. Turns out Mailgun had a customer, not going to name that company. And they had one of those contact us forms. You know, you see them online, you go to these websites and there's like from to subject body. And one of the fields they added was put your email here if you want copy of your message to be sent to you. On the surface, it seems like an innocent thing to do. But what, remember I was telling you about this crime that happens in the email space? So what they do, they find these oh, forms God. Oh, and they do a robot that basically like starts sending spam using that form by sticking the real email addresses of people. And as it was going out, it was sent delivered by Mailgun because it's the part of email signature. Oh, That's how we ended up on the front page of Reddit. So not having to deal with these issues is incredibly great. And this is why I'm so happy that Gravitational is not a service software as a service company. Okay, last question. <laughs> you can feel free to skip this one also. But you worked in venture capital in Austin for a little bit. and A little bit, yeah. I I'm from Austin. I lived for 12 years in Austin. Oh, it's really? It's my favorite city in the world. Yeah. Oh, okay. I grew up there. I, Congrats. I went you to had school. a very good childhood. Yeah. It was great. When is it going to be possible to do a startup in Austin? I'm going to be honest with you. I left Austin for this very same reason. Just one reason that I could not raise any kind of capital when I lived there. And ironically, Melgan is now a Texas company. So it's a fairly sizable company based in Austin or San Antonio. So even though I had to leave the state to start my baby, then the baby ended up being a Texan. <laughs> so I think it's pretty ironic. So I think that startup ecosystem in Austin right now is like 100 times better than it was originally. There's like, it feels to me that things are different, but you'll never really know until you try to build your own. 
And I was a venture partner at a local VC just briefly for one summer. Can't really share much because I just quickly realized that's not for me the experience because you have to be, you have to have this insane context switching ability if you're an investor. You need to be able to quickly fall in love or hate a specific idea or a specific entrepreneur and do it several times a day. That to me is just emotionally exhausting. So I couldn't do it. Yeah. So other than that, I can't really predict when Austin is going to surpass Silicon Valley. Yeah. Part of me thinks you could do it today because of the I mean, same reason you said why you love GitLab or you, why you love Git, how GitLab builds its company. You know, totally. I totally. Also, I, I'm finding that the change is happening on both sides that investors in the Valley, they're way more open today to fund a company that it's not based here. Yeah, the thing is, I don't think it's an investor problem. I've said this before, but it's just like, there's something about Austin where it's like, Austin's, man, I love going to Austin to relax and totally. like hang out with my friends. And yeah. it's like, that's the wrong atmosphere to be building a startup in. Or maybe not. Maybe actually it's fine. Like maybe that's fine to build a startup I think it's in fantastic. I worked at a startup in Austin for a while. It was a great experience. The company was called Pluck. It was it was awesome, dude. That's that's actually funny you mentioned that. I worked at like when I worked at SpiceWorks, I was really happy. I did an internship at SpiceWorks, and I loved the people there. The software was great. The company was great. I don't know why I'm a bear, but I don't know. There's something in the water here that I really like, and it's just people are hungry, and it's just nonstop, you know, craziness. But maybe that's just I don't know. Maybe it's a matter of time. Hard to speculate. I hope it is. Yeah. Ev, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you. Likewise. Thanks for having me. Monday.com is a team management platform that brings all of your work, external tools, and communications into one place, making cross-team collaboration easy. You can try Monday.com and get a 14-day trial by going to monday.com slash sedaily. And if you decide to become a customer, you will get 10% off by using coupon code sedaily. What I love most about monday.com is how fast it is. Many project management tools are hard to use because they take so long to respond. And when you're engaging with project management and communication software, you need it to be fast, you need it to be responsive, and you need the UI to be intuitive. Monday.com has a modern interface that's beautiful to look at. There are lots of ways to use Monday, but it doesn't feel overly opinionated. It's flexible, can adapt to whatever application you need, dashboards, communication, Kanban boards, issue tracking. If you're ready to change the way that you work online, give Monday.com a try by going to monday.com slash sedaily and get a free 14-day trial. And you will also get 10% off if you use the discount code SEDAILY. Monday.com received a Webby Award for Productivity App of the Year, and that's because many teams have used Monday.com to become productive. Companies like WeWork and Philips and Wix.com. Try out Monday.com today by going to monday.com slash SEDAILY. Thank you to Monday.com for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Daily.